All right, let's go ahead, please, and turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 9. If you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've called it Transformed by Grace. And although we are going to confine ourselves to Acts chapter 9, verse 19b through to the end of verse 31, I want us nonetheless to, to read the entirety of Acts chapter 9 so we can enjoy it together, so we can get back in the zone together, so we can see what God is doing. And the life of this guy called Saul, a man who he will, we will see appears in nearly every chapter after this moment. So let's read this together and enjoy it. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. But they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. and It was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Lord, how do we thank you enough for your word? Your word changes lives. Your word describes things in words and pictures. 
that blow our minds, that inspire us, that excite us. Well, Lord, would you have your way amongst us today? Would you inspire us afresh in your word? Would there be no individual in the room that leaves this room unaffected by you this morning? Would we go away affected to the core of who we are, amazed at your grace, amazed at your gospel? And would you transform us by your grace, just like you did Saul? In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, The History of the Christian Church, Philip Schaff writes as follows. He says, The conversion of Paul marks not only a turning point in his personal history, but also an important epic in the history of the apostolic church, and consequently, the history of mankind. Last Sunday, we saw the conversion of Saul. We saw how his life dramatically changed, and we saw, I trust, how it really is a picture of grace. He is and was an unlikely candidate. We get introduced to him at the start of chapter 8 as Saul, a man who is ravaging the church. He is literally taking men and women from their homes by their hair, pulling them outside, trying them, and if they're found to be a Christian, he's sending them off to prison with the hope that they will be killed and martyred just like Stephen. He's the most unlikely candidate. He's a terrorist against Christianity. And yet this unlikely candidate gets unlikely saved. He's on the way to Damascus. and He's on a road. And at the heat of day, with light already shining around him as it would be in the Middle East, God in his grace in Jesus comes in his glory. And he encounters him. Light shines all around him. He's blinded. But in a moment, he meets with Jesus And his life is dramatically changed. He goes from a fighter of the gospel to being part of the family. He goes from a persecutor of the gospel to being prepared to be a proclaimer of the gospel. He goes from being a man who is seeking Christians out to kill them to a man who wants to stay with Christians because he realizes they are now all part of his family. He's dramatically changed in a moment. He puts his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. In a moment, he's forgiven of his sin. He knows what it is to be adopted into the family of God, what it is to be reconciled to God, what it is to know that heaven is his home. It is an unlikely salvation. But as you study the passage, what a wonderful picture of grace it is, isn't it? And then, as we saw last week, when you look closely, you realize we're in the picture too. We're in the same photo that Dr. Luke is trying to show us. And we're in the photo because this unlikely sequel was given to us by the Apostle Paul himself, a man who became Apostle to the nations. Through his salvation, if you were able to directly trace yours, you would find him at the top of the pile somewhere. As a guy who, coming out of Jerusalem, told a Gentile about Christianity, who told a Gentile about Christianity, who told a Gentile about Christianity, and the gospel spread even to people like me and you. On the other side of the world, the nations well far from Jerusalem. We are the unlikely sequel. And this morning, what I want us to do then is look at what happened next. Saul is dramatically saved, but what happens next? And as we look at this together and examine these verses from the second half of verse 19 through to the end of verse 31, it's my hope that we'd be encouraged It's my hope that we would be stirred in our faith and inspired in our faith. Because when you see this, it it really is compelling. And it really is inspiring. See, if you look at verse 31, it's one of Dr. Luke's summary statements. He says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Next week, we'll see through Brandon. Dr. Luke starts to talk to us about Peter, and we start to go on a journey with Peter. It all starts to change. But right here, we have a summary statement that Dr. Luke is deliberately putting in and saying, you know what, at the end of all this, here's what happened. The church went forward, and it went forward in Jerusalem, in Galilee, and Samaria. And you know what? By God's amazing grace, having taken Saul out, it was in peace together. It grew and it multiplied. 
He points us without doubt to the unstoppable gospel. But prior to that, he points us to something else that I think when seen correctly should encourage us, inspire us and indeed stir our faith. Something that I think God wants you and I to see this morning. And it's this. That in just the same way, God equips Saul to advance the glorious work of the gospel. He still equips those he saves today to do the same. In just the same way that God in his grace equipped Saul in his life to advance the glorious work of the gospel. 2,000 years on to Sovereign Grace Church, Sydney. He's still doing exactly the same today as he prepares us to do the same. See, by way of qualifications in that statement, I want you to know Saul, without doubt, has a unique role in salvation history. He's a pretty unique guy. Not many amongst us are going to be writing a third of Scripture. And when I mean not many, I mean none. None of us are going to be doing that. This guy is a unique man. He's been saved by God's grace. He goes on to plant churches throughout the Roman Empire and writes a third of the New Testament. He has a unique role in salvation history. But I still submit to you that the way God equips him is not unique. There are principles to understand here in the way God equips Saul that still echo today that still happen in our lives today, that are still true today, in just the same way that God equipped Saul to advance the glorious work of the gospel. He still equips those he saves today, you and I, to do exactly the same. So in a desire that we'd be encouraged, in a desire that we'd be inspired, in a desire that we'd be stirred in our faith, three points this morning as we look to this text. Here's number one. Number one, Saul gets... A new worldview. See, in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we see Saul, right at the start of the chapter, breathing in threats and murder against the Lord's followers. He hates Christians with an absolute passion. He wants to see Christians dead. He wants to see Christians tortured and brutally murdered. And yet, on the way to Damascus, he... In the process of hunting Christians out, the hunted becomes hunted himself. God hunts him down and he breaks into Saul's life. And Saul, having encountered Jesus, having given his life to Christ as his Lord and Savior, having entered Damascus, is prayed for by Ananias. He's clearly become a Christian. And notice then in verse 20 what he does. Look at it. And immediately, notice the word immediately. It isn't like he didn't go on a training course. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. Straight away, Saul, having been seen Christ, having given his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, immediately, upon entering Damascus, having initially gone there to try and kill Christians... He now, on immediately upon entering it, starts to proclaim Jesus Christ in the synagogues and starts preaching to anybody who will listen that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, there's no doubt at all that quite clearly Saul has been utterly transformed, hasn't he? There is no doubt his life is totally and utterly different. But we must understand as part of that Saul's worldview has been totally transformed. And we need to notice that. See, some of you may be wondering, what on earth does he mean by worldview? Well, we all have one. So we should probably work out what it is. We all have a worldview. We all process things in our lives. When I say worldview, what I mean is simply the lens through which we view the world. The grid of truths and beliefs that we hold to And that we process everything through. And we all do it. We all do it. We all have a set of beliefs and principles and truths that we view life through. And and because we view through these principles, it affects the way we think about things and affects what we do. We're all like that. We can't help ourselves. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not Christian. We all have a worldview. But our worldview changes the way we think about things. 
So if we lined a load of different people up and we said, okay, talk to me about death. Talk to me about the way you feel about death. Some people, through their worldview, are going to say, yeah, death terrifies me. It just sounds, sounds awful. You don't know what's going to happen. And, oh, I can't even think about it. I don't want to, I don't want to even think about it. Other people might say, you know, death, I'm not bothered. You die and then, I don't know, nothing happens to you. Nothing, I don't know, it's just finished. It's a shame, but it happens. Other people as Christians are going to say, you know what, death? That isn't the end. That's the end of the beginning. Because God in his grace raises us to be with him. And heaven is then our home and we spend eternity with him. But to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Depending on your worldview, you view death differently. Marriage is the same. Some people would say, well, you know, marriage, I think, I think it should be fine for two guys to get married. I mean, marriage, marriage, I suppose, is just like a commitment to one another. So it doesn't really matter about your gender or anything like that. Because other people as Christians are going to say, well, no, actually, marriage is a gift from God between a man and a woman. And it's given as a divine mystery to reveal Christ's affection for the church. And the way they model that together reveals Christ in the church. So, yeah, it does matter the way it operates. We all have worldviews and it affects everything we do in our lives. It affects what we do with our time, what we do with our money, what we do with our resources, what we do with our energies. Everybody focuses through a worldview. And there is no doubt at all that quite clearly Saul's worldview has dramatically changed. See, prior to this point, Saul was a deeply devout and legalistic Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He deeply held to the Jewish laws and traditions. And according to the start of the book of Galatians and the start of the book of the Philippians, he makes it clear he was good at it. He was a good Jew. He was doing a good job of these things. See, he was convinced in his life that he was called to be zealous about Jewish traditions. And he believed he was untouchable in the way he held to the traditions and untouchable in his piety. And piety was important to him because he believed as a Jew that he was earning his way back to God. That through his behavior, it would be his behavior that demanded whether God would really accept him into heaven or reject him. And so he wanted to live his life under the letter of the law, making sure he does everything right because he wanted to know that he would be accepted on that last day. And as a result, thinking he was holy, thinking he was zealous, he hated Jesus. I mean, who does Jesus think he is? Jesus rocks up and claims that we're not good enough. <laughs> I'm Saul. I know I'm good enough. Who does he think he is? This is ridiculous. This is blasphemy. We keep the letter of the law and we get saved. Who is this bloke? This is so irritating what he's doing. In fact, this is heresy what he's doing. He's standing against our Jewish traditions. I want to kill him and I want to kill every follower. And I think that would even impress God because as I keep to the letter of the law, this is somebody that needs to die. Do you see his mindset prior to salvation? He's processing everything through that worldview. And yet now, in verse 20, we see him running into the synagogues in Damascus and proclaiming, Jesus is the Son of God. His life has been dramatically transformed, but more than that, his worldview has been dramatically transformed. For once upon a time, he thought that he could do it all himself. But having encountered Jesus Christ, he realizes it's all about Jesus and not me. For in and of myself, I have to cast all things before him. All my actions are like a filthy rag before the Lord. And yet Jesus Christ came after me. In a moment, as he encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road, he realizes there is a God And that he has a great and holy standard. And although mankind may try and achieve to come to it, you can't do it. And I tried as a Jew. I gave it everything as a Pharisee to try, but it wasn't good enough. And yet Jesus Christ came after us. He died on the cross in our place and through faith in him and repentance... We can be saved. It's through faith, not our works, that we can know salvation. It's through faith and not what we do. It's through faith in what he does that ensures that we're forgiven of our sin and adopted and that heaven is our home. Our salvation is not based in us. It's based in him. 
And Saul, with a new worldview, rocks up in Damascus and begins to preach this because he's aware all of a sudden, all you people that think you're getting right with God, you're not. All you people that are trying hard to earn salvation before the Lord, you're never going to make it. But Jesus has come after you. And he has made it possible for your great salvation. Listen to me, Damascus. In a moment, his life has been transformed. His worldview has been utterly transformed. Here's why it's important. Part of the way God prepared Saul for his missionary work, for sharing the gospel with others, was to change his worldview. Sovereign grace upon salvation, he's equipped you as well because he's changed your worldview too. He's radically affected the way you think. He's radically affected the philosophy in which you look at life. He's, in a moment, greatly affected the way you think about God and Jesus and yourself and eternity. It comes as part of knowing the gospel. It comes as part of having the Holy Spirit live in you. You're given the mind of Christ. In a moment, God in his grace has changed your worldview. And that's important. Because I think sometimes we can feel so under-equipped to share the gospel with people. And yet God in this chapter is looking back at us and saying, I've given you a new worldview. I've changed the way you think. And this equips you more than you know. And folks, I want you to know and I want you to be encouraged. Your worldview is dramatically different to that of somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ. See, a few weeks ago when we took up the Go Forward Fund and we collected over $121,000, to an unbeliever, that doesn't make sense. That's weird. Why would you give up so much money for a church? Why would you sacrifice so much stuff so that your church can get like offices and a new facility? Why bother? That can seem so lame through that worldview. But to you, you're aware, I want to do this. Because God loves a cheerful giver. And I want to store up treasures for myself in heaven. And so that you can have it all. And I'm passionate of seeing the gospel go forward in Sydney. So I want to offer. Your worldview has been changed more than you think. For some of you in this room, quite a number of you, you've moved thousands of miles to help plant this church, Sovereign Grace Church Sydney. You've left people you love, you've left family, you've left friends. To an unbeliever, that makes no sense. Why would you do that? Why would you uproot yourselves from different churches and different family members? What? For a church? And yet to you, you do it with pleasure and joy because you're aware, my, my life is not my own. And I love the Lord. And so you can have it all. To an unbeliever, that makes no sense. To a believer with a worldview, looking at things through the gospel, you realize heaven is my home. One day we'll be united with everybody we love who loves Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, our lives are not our own. And so let's be proclaiming Jesus Christ and wherever you want us to go. That's many of you. Many of you have that story. Different ones of you go about the task of reaching people with the gospel, of seeking to proclaim Christ and him crucified in your workplaces, in your colleges. That's a weird thing to do to an unbeliever. Why would you do anything that you could be ridiculed for? Why would you do anything that people could look on and feel offended by? Why would you do anything that people could look on to you and think, that's really weird, I don't want to have anything to do with you? But to, an unbelie- to a believer who knows outside of the gospel, your eternity is hell. You suddenly feel a different motivation to want to reach people. And you want to go to them because you realize the gospel is what sets you free. Sovereign Grace, I say all that because I want to encourage you. You have been more equipped than you realize. And you've been equipped in part by him changing your worldview exactly like he did Saul. My friends, don't put your worldview then under a bushel. See, one of the big parts of evangelism, I think, honestly, is realizing God has made you you. He's given you your personality. 
He's given you your strengths. He's given you your gifts. And so you get on living that way in the world. But don't hide your worldview. When conversations come up, share your point of view. Because it's the truth more often than not that sets people free. And it's sharing in those moments that leads people at later date to come back and say, why did you believe that? That, that rang true, but why did you believe that? God equips us for mission more than we realize in just the same way that God equips Saul to advance the glorious gospel. He still equips those he saves today to do the same. He's changed your worldview. He will use that for his glory. He changed Saul's worldview. But that's not all he did. Number two, Saul gets a new community. See, prior to becoming a Christian, Saul is only ever around Christians for one reason, to kill them. That's why Saul hangs with, with the Christians. He wants to find them, and he wants to kill them. He wants to torture them, and then he wants to see them dead. But then he gets dramatically saved, and look at what happens. Look with me at verse 18. He comes to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Ananias rocks up. He prays for him. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Listen, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. He's been baptized. He's taken food. He hasn't eaten for three days. He's a man. He's hungry. And then he craves community. Like a homing pigeon. He's aware, I I need community. I need brothers and sisters. I need to seek out people who also love Jesus Christ like I do. Having been baptized and taken food, he seeks out community. No one's taught him that. He's just aware of that straight away. I need brothers and sisters. I need people. I, I need to be equipped. I need people to care for me. I need people to encourage me. I don't even know what I'm doing as a Christian. I've been a Jew all my life. Now I'm a Christian. Oh my, what does this mean? I, I need believers around me. In Galatians 1, it tells us that Paul was actually there for three years. Paul was there for three years in Damascus and in Arabia. He was preaching Jesus throughout that time. A load of people get saved in Damascus. A load of people start to follow Paul. They start to give their lives to Jesus Christ and, and follow him in, in his works. And as is typical in Acts... When something's going really well, a load of Jewish guys rock up and want to kill the perpetrator. That's exactly what they do now to Saul. The one who used to hunt is now hunted by the Jews. So three years on in verses 23 through 25, we see that these Jews are waiting at the gate of Damascus for him. They want to ambush him and they want to drag him off to prison and drag him off to martyrdom. So by now, Saul's got his own disciples his own men and women that are following him, and they take Saul and they lower him down from the Damascus wall in a basket. And in verse 26, then we read this. And when he had come to Jerusalem, which is where he decided to go, he attempted to join the disciples. I love that. He attempted to join the He gave it a go. What happened? They're like, you must be joking. I know exactly who you are. You're the guy that was persecuting us three years ago. You're the one that was killing us. You're the one that had Stephen killed and then looked on knowingly with glee. What do you mean you've become a Christian? They don't want him to be a part of them. They're afraid of him instantaneously. But, verse 27, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now in a moment we're going to look at really the the power that is in that verse 28 and 29. What it really meant for him to go preaching to the Hellenists. Because that is hugely significant. But for now, in this point, I want us to ensure that we don't miss verse 19 and 26. Because in verse 19, having just become a Christian, Saul seeks out other believers. He's there for three years with other believers. And then when he has to flee to the city, he goes to Jerusalem. And what does he do? 
straight away, like a homing pigeon, he seeks out other believers. He's aware of his need for community. The point is this. God in his grace has given Saul a new community. My friends, we need to notice this and not miss this. Because this is hugely significant. It's hugely important within the context of the rest of Scripture. See, in the New Testament, Christians are always connected to a local church. You don't find any Christians going solo for Jesus in the New Testament. You just don't. You don't see separate families going, you know, I used to like church, but not for me. We're just going to do our thing. You don't, you don't see that. It's nowhere in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you see people becoming Christians and conversion always leading to connection. You get converted, then you immediately connect with a local church. Why? Because Christians aren't designed to go alone. They never have been. They've been designed by the Lord to get converted and then get connected, to get converted and then fit into a local church where they'll have a family, where they'll have brothers and sisters to help them. And folks, what we learn from that, for every one of us in this room 2,000 years on, is that as Christians, we need each other, don't we? We totally and utterly need each other. God's made it that way. He's designed it that way. That's exactly what Saul seems to have instinctively realized. And it's a truth that still stands today. See, a church on sometimes, is, it's like a hospital, isn't it? There's occasions when church is just mopping up with people. They arrive and they're hurting. And they're in pain. Stuff's gone on in their lives. Stuff's gone on in their marriages. Stuff's gone on in their friendships. Stuff's gone on in their relationship with the Lord. And, and they just need to be helped. And they need to be shown the nearest way to a bed so they can lie down and be ministered to. And a church should do that. And there are times, if we're honest, that all of us as Christians need that. We're just hitting the fan in something and we just, we've got nothing to offer. And we need the church to minister to us. The church is also a family. It's a place where we should be loved by one another, where we should be joined to one another, where we should be devoted to one another. Paul himself goes on to preach on the great local church and helps us see how we need to honor one another and rejoice together and weep together and care for one another and serve one another and encourage one another. A place where we need to be bared with with one another because we're sinful people. A place there where we're built up together. A place where we enjoy fellowship with one another. A place where we're prayed for with one another. The church is a family. But if we stop there, we will be radically disappointed. Because before you know it, our whole lives are consumed with what do I get out of church? Where's my care? Where's my prayer? Where's my encouragement? I just don't think it's the way it used to be. I don't feel it the same. My friends... If we crawl up our own backsides when it comes to thinking that church is just family, we're making a radical mistake. Because the church is not only family, the church is also an army. It was always designed that way. God himself, as you become a Christian, says, you know what? I'm pleased you became a Christian. That's great. I I saved you. I came after you. In God's amazing grace, in my grace, I came after you and before the foundation of the earth, I chose you at the right time. I called you to, your, to myself and then I prepared good works in advance for you to do. I want you to go on mission for me. I've got people that I want you to save. I've got people that by God's grace that I'm going to bring into your lives and I want you to share the gospel with them. I want you to go on mission. Jesus Christ himself told the disciples straight up front, listen, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching to observe all that I've commanded you. I want you to do this. He saves us with purpose. He doesn't just save us and then say, oh, here's a family, have a nice life, and then eventually you'll get to heaven. He says, here's a family, now link arms together and pray together and encourage one another, and then get out those doors and go. Because there's a big world out there. And there's people that need to hear about Jesus. And so you need to care for one another. You need to love one another. You need to be devoted to one another. Do all those things. But do all those things with mission in mind. Because we've got to go. 
we've got to tell people about Jesus. And however difficult our lives we perceive them to be, there are people outside those doors who are running headlong to hell. They need us more. So we've got to go. Now, it is not surprising then to me that Saul is very quickly, by the Lord, knitted to a church. Get saved. What does he do? Finds the other believers. Because he's aware he needs comfort that comes through family. But he also needs equipping. He needs help if he's going to go and do what God's apportioned him to do. He then goes to Jerusalem and exactly the same thing happens. He doesn't go incognito. He's like, I've got to find the apostles, man. I've got to find the church. He's aware he needs the care that's going to come through them. He's aware he needs the family that comes through them. But he's aware he needs their equipping. He needs their help. What a joy then it must have been for him to find that Jesus' brother James became one of his best friends. What a joy it must have been to start living together with Peter for 15 days, being helped by Peter and equipped for the task that laid ahead for him. Saul knew that he needed people, but more importantly, God knew that. And so he gave him straight away to community, not only to comfort him, but to equip him. Not only to care for him, but to equip him for what lays ahead for him. He was called to a unique and great mission, but in heart, he needed a family just like we do. He wasn't designed to do it alone. He needed people to cry with him, to help him, to rejoice with him. He needed people to confess to. He needed people to to care with and serve alongside. But he was a brand new Christian as well, and he didn't know what he was doing. He knew the task that God had for him, but oh, there were gaps in his theology the size of King Kong. He wasn't sure even what he was meant to be saying, but he starts to spend time with the brothers and sisters around him that had been a Christian longer than him. And they start to inform him, and he starts to see these things and prepares them to go. Folks, do you see the way it works? Church is so much bigger than we perceive it to be. It is a hospital. It is a family. But it is also an army. And God uses it to not only comfort, but to equip. So when we're singing songs and Jesse's leading us in song, is God going to equip you through those words? Yes, he is. He will bring comfort to your soul. But the more you sing the gospel, the more it comes alive in your heart, the more you want to leave those doors and represent Jesus Christ, and the more you know even what to say. When you hear a preacher and he's expositing scripture, are they meant to comfort? Yes, they are. But they're meant to equip us for the mission that God has for us as well. When we're in our life groups, is that comforting? Absolutely. To know we've got friends and family around us, it is desperately comforting. But it is also equipping us as God says, listen, you're fully cared for in a way people in the world aren't. So go to them. You're never alone. Go to them and let these people hold you accountable to that. Help them encourage you in that. Let them help you in that. Our friend Saul was equipped by God to advance the work of the gospel, not only through a changed worldview, but also came through a new community. And so it is to this day. You've been given a new community as well. Not only to care for you, not only to comfort you, but equip you to go. To equip you for the great mission he has for your life. To go and make disciples of all nations. My friends, if you're here today and you're not connected to a local church, there's nowhere that you actually call home. There's no pastoral team that you look to and go, you know, they're my pastors. There's no one really looking out for you that way. There's there's no group of people that you're connected to and committed to like it talks about in Ephesians 4. I want to encourage you in, in every sense, get connected to a local church. If that's this one, great. But if it's not, that's great too. And more important to me is that we're faithful to the word. I just want you to get connected. And you need to get connected because what you're experiencing is something that we see nowhere in the New Testament. And what you're experiencing is, in effect, sub-Christianity. God, in his grace, has given you a provision of community. So get involved. And you will find then a group of people and the pastoral team and deacons and deaconesses helping you, not only to bring comfort, but to equip you. Equip you for what God's calling you to do. 
to go and tell other people about Jesus. If you're not connected, then I urge you, get connected. But if you are connected, then I want to encourage you. God is equipping you for outreach more than you realize. He's not only given you a new worldview. He's equipped you in exactly the same way he has Saul. He's given you brothers and sisters and a pastor and people to help you, to equip you to go. But even that isn't Saul, all that Saul had. There's another one, number three. Finally, Saul gets a new spirit. I love this one. See, in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, we see the Hellenists. And these Hellenists are, well, they're basically Jews that are Greek-speaking. And we see them in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7 because they're the dudes that jumped Stephen in the first place. They're the people that want to see Stephen dragged before the Sanhedrin. And they're the people that Saul holds their bags and coats as they're actually stoning Stephen at the end of chapter 7. And the Hellenists are Saul's people. They're his buddies. They're his mates. They're the people he used to hang out with. They're the people he would drink with in the night. They're the people that he would love to be with on a weekend. The Hellenists are Saul's homies. What then happens to him as he heads back into Jerusalem? Look, verse 28. He arrives back in Jerusalem. He becomes a part of the community. Then he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. My friends, that is a staggering moment. He goes back to the very people that he watched and cheered as they stoned Stephen. And he boldly preaches the gospel to them. He goes back to the people that he would have laughed with and mocked with and smiled alongside as they were all aware together. Christians, they suck, let's kill them. And he walks back in, into the hotbed which is Jerusalem. He says, I've got to tell you something. Jesus is the Son of God. And he starts to preach boldly to them. You know, the instant thing for me as I hit that verse is simple. One simple question. How did he do that? I mean, I did engineering at university. And so straight away, my mindset often goes to, how does that work? And as I encounter that verse, I just think, how did he do that? Because sometimes we hold these guys like Saul on pedestals and think of them like, you know, there's Jesus and Saul and, you know, all on a level par. But they're not. Saul's just like us. Saul could be sitting on that seat. No one would even particularly notice. It's just a guy. It's a regular guy. So how did he do it? How did he muster up the faith to go back into those people and start preaching boldly to them about Christ? See, Paul would have faced exactly the same fears that we face. He would have been on his way back to Jerusalem, very aware. What are people going to think of me? How are they going to process it now that my life's dramatically changed? More importantly, what are they going to do to me? I was there holding their coats when they stoned Stephen. Is that what's going to happen to me when I go? What do you think he would have been feeling? Do you think there would have been a skip in his step as he thinks, oh, I'm so excited? I submit to you, he would have been feeling fear. He would have been feeling nervous. He would have been feeling inadequacies. And yet he stands there when he arrives and preaches boldly. How does he do that? Well, the answer to that question, I think, should inspire faith in every one of us in the room. Because the answer to that question is not based on his character. It's not his character type. He's not Tigger coming to every party and doesn't care less what happens. And so whatever happens, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. That's not what he's like. Likewise, it's not that he's learned as a Christian. There were still so many gaps at this moment in his life. He hadn't been a Christian five minutes. And yet he's there preaching boldly. How? He is bold in his proclamation because he has been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why he's able to preach boldly. It's something outside of himself. See, we see the same in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, 
Right at the start, 120 people waiting in an upper room, incredibly nervous, fearful about what is taking place. The Holy Spirit comes, boom! They go outside, what do they start doing? They boldly start proclaiming the wonders of God. And Peter stands up and starts proclaiming Christ and him crucified. In Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, Peter, a man who just a couple of months earlier denied Jesus Christ three times because he was too afraid of a slave girl, now arrives in front of a great Sanhedrin that want him killed and starts to proclaim Jesus boldly to them with courage because he wants them to become Christians. Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen, a quiet Disposition servant of the Lord, one of the seven that are asked to help the widows, to help minister to them. Acts chapter 7, he's dragged before the Sanhedrin and we read, Stephen, filled with the Spirit, starts to proclaim boldly. This quiet man starts to proclaim Christ and him crucified because he's received the Holy Spirit. And so it is here in Acts chapter 9. Saul. A man who was just like us, who would have been fearful just like us in this moment. What do we read in verse 17? And Ananias prays for him that you may regain your sight and that you may be what? Filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit and in that moment goes forward and starts to proclaim Jesus Christ boldly. My friends, I believe that should inspire faith in absolutely every Christian in the room. Because it is that same Holy Spirit that lives in our hearts today. Just let that issue settle for a moment. See, I think we can hear that and go, yeah, I know. No, you don't know. The same Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to equip the apostles... The same Holy Spirit that God, by His grace, breathed life into the world in. The same Holy Spirit that can raise people from the dead. The same Holy Spirit that can heal blind eyes. The same Holy Spirit that in a moment can bring the gospel alive in somebody's heart. The same Holy Spirit that can give men and women with weak knees strength. Men and women with tongues that don't know what they're even saying. Words to say with clarity. Is the same Holy Spirit that lives in your heart. My friends, we are more equipped for gospel mission than you could ever imagine. Gives us a new worldview. Gives us a new community. And then he says, listen, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. I want you to go and preach the gospel. And lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. He then unpacks that in the Gospel of John, making it clear, I'm going to go, but I'm going to send one just like me. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he will reside with you. Sovereign Grace, if there's one thing I want you to remember this morning, it's simply this, that in your mission, you are never alone. You're never alone. Jesus, through the personal work of the Holy Spirit, is with you wherever you go. And as you cry out to him and look to him for help, he will strengthen your weak knees just like he did Saul. And he will give you words to say just like he did Stephen. He will help you as you and I in our honest and natural fears look to him for grace. You will find a boldness comes to your body. And it's in that boldness we need to go. Ernest Southcott, an eminent Christian author of the early 20th century, once said something that stuck with me for many years. He said, the holiest moment in the church, the holiest moment of the church service, is the moment when God's people, strengthened by preaching and sacrament, go out of the church doors and into the world to be the church. Listen, for we don't go to church, we are the church. My friends, you don't go to church, you are the church. We don't gather to be with the church in a church. We are the church. And so when we leave those doors, we're still the church and we're called to go on mission together. We're called to brandish the gospel and not only be comforted by it, but proclaim it to a world that is dying and lost without it. My friends, I want to encourage you then, by the grace of God, 
and for his glory. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's be the people that God has called us to be. And as we go, here's my encouragement. In just the same way that God equips Saul to advance the glorious work of the gospel, he still equips those he saves today to do the same. My friends, he's given you a new worldview. He's changed the way you think and view life. He will use that in the mission. He's given you a new community to help you and comfort you and care for you, but also to encourage you and pray for you as you go and do what you're called to do. And he's given you a new spirit. As you leave the doors, he says, I'm coming with you. As you go to your communities, your schools, your workplaces, I'm coming with you. You will never be alone. So sovereign grace, let's go. Let's do this, amen. And let us do all for the fame of Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, your word is sharper than a double-edged sword. And it cuts us deep, Lord, but it cuts us so often in a way that is convicting and yet encouraging. And Lord, I do pray today that for all of us, we would be freshly stirred in our faith, freshly encouraged, freshly inspired in what you have done in our lives. How you've stepped into our lives and changed our lives around in a picture of grace. How we were once dead and lost in our sins. And yet, like Saul, how you came after us and you encountered us and in a moment you saved us. Lord, we weren't then just saved for comfort. We were saved for mission. And you've prepared us for that mission. Lord, knowing then of your grace in our lives, Lord, would we go? Would there be fresh boldness, fresh zeal, fresh urgency in our tone? And would nothing stand against us as we stand in your boldness and your goodness? Would the gospel, the unstoppable gospel, truly go forward throughout us? In Jesus' name.